Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, children of the future. It's time to gather around the pulpit, bow your heads, and listen in closely to our prophet of the new age, Matthew Dickerson, with this week's Tech Talk. G'day, Matt. I'm just fishing for feedback here, but does that sound like it's starting to become a bit of a cult to you? Uh, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> if you're going to be in a cult, a tech cult will be the one I'd yeah, be in. That's the one I'd choose, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, imagine a cult that was just based around tech. Today, folks, you're going to have to start playing with your phones all day. Great. This is fantastic. <laughs> what well, to my friends about this cult. <laughs> now, what's been uh, occupying your brain space um, over the last week? Well, a few people have started to talk to me about space, not about visiting space, as we've talked about in the past, but if space is going to get too crowded, and which sounds like a preposterous proposition. Mm. Surely there's a fair bit of space up there, excuse the very bad pun. Mm. But we've got Boeing now who's going to launch about 130 satellites. We already know about Starlink with their array of satellites that they want to provide internet access around the world. Yeah. We've got Bezos wants to do something to compete against Musk, because why not when you're a <laughs> multi-billionaire and someone else does something, you might as well go and compete with them. So we're getting a lot of stuff up there. There's already a lot of stuff up there. We know that lots of satellites are up there. They might be GPS satellites, they might be weather satellites satellites, communication satellites, mm. even just things like NBN satellites are up there sitting there way above, you know, they're talking 36,000 kilometres for those ones, but it's probably that low Earth orbit sort of range, not way up 36,000 kilometres in geostationary, but is it going to get too crowded up there? And well, that's really interesting. Yeah, Tesla was talking about putting up his array of satellites, um, sorry, Tesla, Musk, I should say, what am I saying? Um, so, yeah, he was talking about his uh, array of satellites, and they're the size of a loaf of bread. Um, yep. So they're not enormous, but they're flying around there at 30,000 kilometres per hour yeah. in a low Earth orbit. That's, bit of energy there, bit of momentum. a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Look so out. I, I think we've got a way to go yet because it is three-dimensional. You're not just talking about, say, cars on a road that mm. is two-dimensional. So it is three-dimensional, and you've got some of these satellites that are at different heights, even though they might be at low Earth orbit, that still gives you a fair variety of distances above the Earth. But it is quite incredible when you look at that. And can you remember back about 1977, we had, I just can't remember the name. Skylab. Skylab, when yeah. Skylab crashed into Australia. Plonked into Western Australia, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. I remember, the, that would be one of the first news stories I can actually remember. That, wow. Anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. You must have been a baby. You know, in the cot still <laughs> in 1977. I was a little bit old. I was, a, I was an old toddler. Right. 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 But that sort of thing, obviously that wasn't meant to happen in that way. But when we put lots of this stuff up there, sure, it's meant to stay up there for a long period of time. But you put it up, sometimes it might actually come down as well. So mm. Skylab, go forward 30 or 40 years, we might see that sort of Skylab happening on a more regular basis. Obviously, when they design these satellites, they're meant to design them so that they either jettison them off outside the orbit or they... Well, they burn up on re-entry, yeah. yeah and so yeah. That's, that's what happens for a, a large bulk of the space junk. However... Yeah. The more space junk that's up, that's up there, the more collisions you have, the yep. more little bits of extra space junk you end up with, um, and they're all travelling at 30,000 kilometres an hour or so. And even when they come down, you make the point that something small could do a lot of damage up there, but mm. a Skylab falling onto mm. the Earth obviously is a big event, but even something small, if that burnt up and there was only a few bits left, some of those things, they'll reach terminal velocity, sure, as they fall towards the Earth, but that's still several hundred kilometres an hour, so mm. that's going to hurt if it bops you on the top of the head. <laughs> but there's a lot of room up there in space still. I think we've got a fair bit of opportunity to put more things up there, but it is something that people that are designing these systems have to really consider. In the early days, they just whacked it up there into space and away it went. Yeah, now they've got to go, oh, who else is in 
our orbit? Who else mm. could we be colliding with? Which part of the Earth are they over at the moment? It is an interesting sort of scenario they've got to think about as they do that. Yeah, and um, I'm glad that someone's thinking about that. <laughs> um, I think the US military are watching it all very closely as well, trying to track things with um, lasers and whatnot. And, yeah. and even putting in some um, uh, some technology, I believe, to actually try to um, diminish the amount of space junk we have yep. with lasers. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like fun, doesn't it? Yeah, Star Wars. Here we come. <laughs> Maybe those cult guys could get into it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm looking forward to your bag of tricks today. Uh, we're looking into 3D printing entire neighbourhoods. Now, this is not a Saturday afternoon hobby sort of thing, folks, where you just look, create something in your back garage or whatever. This is creating neighbourhoods by 3D printing. Um, we welcome Toyota into the EV family. And it's time to herald the age of the holographic phone call, folks. This is happening, and you're all going to get it right here on Tech Talk. Now, let's kick off with one that is bound to stir your imagination. Back in 1989, Marty McFly introduced to the world the concept of the hoverboard. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then flick us an email and we'll talk you through it slowly. Another time, not now. Um, as they poured out of the cinema, though, teenage boys and girls the world over swooned at the possibility that this could be a thing in the near future. 32 years later, and we're still not really there. But hold on to your hats, folks. The hoverbike is on its way. It's a close approximation, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had a look at this on YouTube, and uh, it looks cool. It, it does. Yeah, it's not quite what I had imagined a hoverbike might look like, but this is only the first generation. First generation, that's right. Now, hoverboards, I mean, obviously lots of people have tried to look at hoverboards. I mean, have you ever tried I've, to create a hoverboard? I've seen some stuff, yeah, they're done with superconductors uh, yep. and, yeah, well, high, high-powered magnets and all that sort of stuff. So um, there, there are hoverboards out there, but you're extremely limited on where you can go and what you can do there. You've got to go over the track that they create for Bingo. you, obviously. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. So the hover bike obviously is here. A little bit expensive at this stage. It's the first model. US $680,000. Only available only. in Japan. Only, that's right. Only available in Japan. And just a minor inconvenience you can't actually fly it out in public areas because <laughs> at the moment it's not legal. Yeah. Once again, we've talked about it before. The legislation has got to catch up with the technology. The hover bike's here. Oh, sorry, you can't actually use it in the real world. The demonstration, the video that you would have looked at, the same one that I looked at, I dare say, was on a racetrack. So mm. they popped up this nice little hover bike. Essentially, it looks like a motorbike from the top up. On the bottom half, it's just got four propellers like a drone would have. Big fans. And they're... Enclosed, they're protected. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you wouldn't want to fall off the bike and have your arm go through it, but I'm sure there's a bit of protection there. But this company that's made it actually makes drones, so you figure they've got a bit of expertise in that. So you sit there on the bike, you take off, you hover, and it does about 100 kilometres an hour, so that's pretty Which impressive. pretty cool. Yeah, it hovers in the one that I saw a few metres above the ground, but there's no reason it can't go higher than a few metres above the ground. So if you're in a big city where you've got lots of tall buildings around you and you want to get from A to B, There'll probably be some limit on how high you would go, the height you would go to, but you can make your commute to work a direct route rather than going through all those pesky streets with all those how pesky cool cars. That? Now, that is cool because some people in big cities might have a five-kilometre commute to work and it takes them an hour, and I'm probably exaggerating slightly there, but with all the traffic lights, with all the traffic, with all the cars, you've got to try and get through all that, get the hover bike out, and Up you're bouncing you over people's rooftops. Absolutely. Look out, kids. Here comes Santa on his hoverbike. <laughs> That's right. Well, of course, Santa would have one of these. It gets a bit scary when you want to start going over skyscrapers, but maybe you just go over the houses around where you are and then get straight to there and maybe follow the roads vaguely, but you just miss all that traffic until everyone gets a hoverbike and then, of course, there'll be so much traffic up in the air. And I see there's also a limit there of 100 kilos. If you weigh more than 100 <laughs> kilos, that's the payload of these bikes. 
That isn't for you. Sad face. I've got to get out jogging a little bit more. And um, Well, you know, that also negated the excitement that I had of saying to my kid, to my wife, hey, jump on the back, I'll take you for a ride, because <laughs> combined you might just push yourself over that 100 kilo limit. So I'm sure my wife and kids were going, thank goodness for that. We didn't have to come up with some <laughs> excuse that we didn't want to get on the back there now. But it does sound interesting, and I, I like the idea that people are talking about what I would put in the general category of personal commuting devices. And the hover bike is certainly one of those. We've got other little drones that are being built, ones that can fit two or three people, small taxis, a whole range of different devices. Mm. But this one here, I mean, I used to ride motorbikes a lot as a kid. I love motorbikes. So this one here appeals to me for a whole range of reasons. Probably the only downside still is the time. You've only got about 40 minutes of flying time on it. Mm. And again, it's the problem. You make it fly for longer, you need more batteries, batteries are heavy, so then you need more batteries to make it fly for longer because it's now heavier and it, on it a- goes. And this model's a hybrid model, isn't it, too? It's- well, I was a bit confused about that because they talked about the fact that it's got an internal combustion engine. So I thought, yeah. great, you put some fuel in and away you go forever. Well, not forever, but for yeah. as long as that fuel goes. But then they talked about you fly 40 minutes before requiring a charge. So I was a bit confused about that. I don't actually know how the internal combustion engine mm-hmm. fits into that scenario. Maybe it was Maybe just a mistake. Maybe the stereo cuts out and you've got to be listening to Kenny Loggins singing Highway to the Danger Zone while <laughs> maybe, you're riding. Maybe. <laughs> it does sound interesting, though. I think we'll see more and more of these type of things. And again, hopefully the law catches up soon so we can just fly it around our city and <laughs> go to wherever we need to go to. That would be cool. Now, here's a story that's been on my mind for about a decade. Look, I've got a bunch of family videos from when my boys were babies, and, um, and, and they're all on tiny little DV cassettes. Now, for anyone under 20, a cassette is a tiny little plastic box with a magnetic tape that runs from reel to reel, one reel to another, I should say, and look, forget it, another time. Anyway, the camera that I could play them on went belly up long ago, and there's a wealth of awesome memories, records of big family holidays and such, kids growing up. About 10 years stored on these little cassettes. Matt, give me some good news. Tell me that those memories are not lost forever. They will be soon. There's a symposium that's been organised, James, for 2025 is the target date. Now, there's no reason in particular that 2025, everything's going to stop. But the organisers of this symposium said, well, we've got to just put some sort of time frame in people's minds to start thinking about it. Because the logic is all those old devices, and the problem is, They were proprietary. They were often proprietary with not just the cassette tapes, Mm. but the cables that you need to plug that camera into something else. This is way before the days of USB. And of course, we've even got multiple versions of USB. But this is when every manufacturer came out with their version of the cable that was better than everyone else's version of the cable, of course. And it had connectors that were different to everyone else. And you had to buy that one cable. And I remember one camera I had, beautiful camera, took fantastic videos, had its own cables. And then it had its own software. And I remember actually changing computers at one stage and you couldn't just clone the computer across. You needed to reinstall the software. I'd lost the CD that it Uh. came on. So I had to actually buy the software again from that camera manufacturer to be able to actually (laughs) encode or decode the footage that was on that camera or on the video cassettes on that camera. In a world where things are supposed to be getting easier, well, things just get more complicated. This is going back a few years. I think it's gotten a bit better now. But the problem is that Things wear out, especially when you've got moving parts. You've got moving uh, gears. You've got mm. moving tape across a head to read that. Those parts that move out, the problem that the organisers symposium are talking about is that they will wear out and then you won't be able to get those parts again. Or, more importantly, oh. no one will know how to actually repair it. And you can't just go and buy another one off the shelf because of all these different tapes that are out there, you would have Buckley's chance of finding someone that actually makes another 
video cam that takes that same particular tape. It's not as bad a problem for people that have got, say, VHS or beta, because you can still probably get some of those video recorders today, but let's jump forward four years, yeah. maybe 10 years, and you had an old video cassette, I've got my wedding on this particular video and oh, I want to show my grandkids and oh, I can't play it and the grandkids are going thank goodness for that we didn't want to watch it <laughs> grandpa <laughs> but this is the problem so uh, the, the real message I think they're trying to get to is work out some way to get that footage off now while you've still got the opportunity rather than these memories being lost forever and it might be one thing for a video of my wedding to be lost forever and people say well that's a bit disappointing for you but you've got some pretty important stuff on video at the moment there might mm. be national significance archives of various events that might have happened so when you talk about a large news organization a, an abc a channel nine a channel seven someone like that that's got significant footage maybe for example when gough whitlam was inserted as prime minister or sorry sacked as prime minister that sort of footage now i hope someone's archived that but maybe yeah. it's sitting there on a videotape somewhere so it's all those sorts to things that you've got to think about and it's a laborious job James I did actually get my kids to do this many years ago I had an old camera and I was a bit like you I was a bit concerned about whether or not that camera would last a lot longer and I had a bunch of tapes at least 60 of them and so one holiday said guess what kids you've got a school project oh great dad we love school projects well put that tape in get that proprietary cable plug it in with that proprietary software press play and wait an hour. Well, what do we do for that hour? You can watch a video, which may or may not involve you. It may involve something completely unrelated to you, completely boring, or one of your siblings. Or it might involve you, but wait an hour. You don't have to watch it, obviously. But then stop recording and stop playing. Because, of course, yeah, it's, it's on a, like a magnetic tape. You can't fast you, you can't fast track that. You've no. got to wait for that magnetic, magnetic tape yep. to go across the head the playing head, yep. and then and I've seen capture the data. Oh, various yeah, devices so that painful. allow it to go a bit faster across the head and then counter for that when it's actually doing the recording. Yeah. But you're paying a lot of money to, for those type of devices. And there's the risk of losing quality as well. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. So, And you can do – there are organisations out there that will transfer – you take the whole country I reckon this is for an enterprising individual out there to get themselves a whole bunch of different models <laughs> while they still can of these and, and keep them as fresh and as new as possible, yeah. you could make a million bucks out of people yeah. wanting to transfer them. And I think you're right. That, that might be another business model that pops up as a result of this. But they'll charge a lot of money. If I was doing it, I'd yeah, charge a lot of money yeah, if I had sure. one of my employees in there for an Particularly if you've got to sit around for an hour <laughs> <That's> <laughs> waiting for something to bake. Yeah. So, uh, and again, you're taking the risk of losing someone's memory, so you want to be really careful with all of yeah. that. It is a problem, but uh, all the message here from this symposium really is if you've got some of that data, some of that beautiful old data out there, then take advantage Act of the fact now. that now you might be able to do it. Maybe in the future it'll be either very expensive or very difficult or people just won't know. Imagine a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Mm. People wouldn't even know how to feed that through the reel to the yeah. other end and get it actually spinning. That takes some know-how. Yeah, mm. yeah. Knowledge being lost, parts being lost, all the rest of it, and memories being lost. I hope they don't take away vinyl, though. I still like a vinyl record. <laughs> and as a way of recording things, um, yeah, there's, there's something about the, the hiss of a vinyl record that uh, I reckon is timeless. Okay, folks, uh, cue the ticker tape and confetti and the music and the dancers. Let it out. Whoop it up, let it let it all just happen because Toyota has busted the seal. It's joining the team and finally has released an EV. Ooh. Matt, this is a moment worth some fanfare, isn't it? Toyota for a long time have been saying it's they a passing fact. Stood their ground. That little buzzy noise that those EVs make, no one will take to that. That'll just be 
terrible. And we talked about it before that they were actually lobbying the Biden administration as recently as a couple of months mm. ago to say, stop giving all these incentives to these EVs. Well, why would you do <laughs> They're that? They're going nowhere. They finally realised that, mm, you know what, maybe we should join them. You can't join beat them. them. We better join They're them. They're a bit like the cranky old uncle at uh, the Christmas table who smokes or whatever. He's finally given up smoking and <laughs> now he's joining the Christmas table and everyone's welcome. He doesn't smell like cigarettes anymore. And, and he'll be up people that are smoking. What? What are they people <laughs> smoking for? So before long, Toyota will be giving a, a hard frown to anyone that still makes some sort of internal combustion engine. But the first model out, and it always had to be a good model because they're so late to the game, the first model out is actually pretty impressive. For a start, and this is a question I get asked a lot, They've got solar panels on the roof. Hmm. And you think, well, that's pretty obvious. Why wouldn't you put solar panels on the roof? That's right. Toyota say with solar panels on the roof, it will add about 1,800 kilometres per year to your batteries if you park it out in the sun for most of the day. And this is the problem with solar panels on the roof. When people ask me, I say what my science teacher said at high school, the answer is, if you don't know the answer in science, Surface area. The surface area of the roof of your car just isn't big enough to put any significant charge into your car. Sure, it can put a little bit of charge in there, but not much. Mm -hmm. Toyota have done it as much as anything, I think, personally, for a gimmick value. Look at this. We've got a solar panel on the roof. No one else has that. It'll charge up your car automatically. Well, a little tiny bit if you drive (laughs) very slowly. But 1,800 kilometres, sure, that's... 1,800 kilometres. Yeah, kick in the guts. Yeah, that's some... You have to get from somewhere else. They've also got the yoke steering wheel, which... Formula One cars have got, which I know Tesla's got on one of their new vehicles coming out. And again, I think this is trying to catch up, make themselves look very Mm. modern. The thing that's a bit scary about it, though, is it's a drive-by-wire system. There's no mechanical connection between the steering wheel and your wheels. When you turn (laughs) the steering wheel, that tells a computer to activate a motor to turn your steering wheels. And the good part about that is... You only have 150 degrees from lock to lock. So you're not spinning your wheel around because with the yoke steering wheel, it's a Mm. bit hard when you get too far away from the center. So 150 degrees lock to lock is the full range of the steering. So that's actually quite a different way of driving. You actually get more movement out of the wheels for a smaller movement out of the steering wheel. I remember the first time I was in a helicopter and I said to the pilot, that's pretty cool. Can I have a go of the the actual steering yoke? I'm not sure what it's called. It seemed like it was very sensitive. And so... I don't know why, but she gave me a go. The pilot gave me a go. And it was just a minor movement yeah, of that. Right. And it just made a dramatic difference in the actual helicopter. So it seemed like that will happen with a yoke as well, that you just move your steering wheel a little bit and that will move the wheels a bit more. So that's a, mm. a good that thing, That might I think. take some getting used to. I think it would be a little bit different. Yeah, that's right. The specs are pretty good. They've got a 150-kilowatt front-wheel drive model, a 160-kilowatt all-wheel drive model, about 500-kilometer range on one of the models, 460-kilometer range on the other. And they've really adopted technology. They've gone for a completely redesigned digital dash and I think you've got to do that I don't think it's good enough now with how many models we've got out there Mm. just to say we've got a pretty good car already pull the engine out whack some batteries in put an electric motor in hey we've got an electric vehicle you've got to design it from the ground up and that's what it looks like they've done with this the really good part about this is they've done this in conjunction with Subaru so Subaru and Toyota have got a, a collaborative approach to electric vehicles they build what they call the ETNGA platform. And the idea here is that they'll both build their own vehicles with what's on top of it. They'll build their own features, their own steering wheels, all those things. But the base of it, the platform, 
they've collaborated on it to save money and build something that's better without having to both invest their own individual resources. So that makes mm. a lot of sense. Yeah, so yeah. you'll still get a Toyota, you'll still get a Subaru. They'll both be individual cars, but just what's under the skin will be the same between the two platforms. And so they'll build lots of different cars. They'll build hatchbacks, they'll build SUVs, they'll build a whole bunch of different cars. And Volkswagen have done the same thing. They've got some different platforms all in the Volkswagen family, not collaboration with other companies, mm. but all these different platforms where they can build a top on it and have the same sort of structure underneath. It makes uh, repairs and maintenance a little bit easier as well. It um, just makes a lot of sense for a whole range of things. I think mm. the batteries, the motors, all these things. But yeah, again, going forward with repairs and maintenance, it gives some commonality there. But the manufacturing process has got to be easier, got to be cheaper to do it when you've got that common platform. Hmm. Very, very cool. Now, Matt, uh, a while back we talked about 3D printing houses. Now, that's old news now, but... Um, <laughs> Is this bit for real? Are 3D printed buildings becoming so common in some places that people are printing entire neighbourhoods? This is not Lego. This is the real deal. <laughs> this is the real deal. This is a whole neighbourhood. And we've talked about it before. The individual houses that we've talked about have been a bit of a prototype, a bit of a showing off of technology. Look at this. We built a house. Isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah. They even had an example that we spoke about where someone was renting it out and living in it for real. It wasn't just a little prototype you could come and look at. It was someone living their real life in there. It's at the point now, and this will be the first community in the world that will be built in this way, where they're saying the technology has progressed. Why don't we build a whole community? This is 100 houses in a community in Texas where they're all going to be 3D printed. So, so is it faster? Is, is that the lure or what's the big lure? Well, you think it might be faster, it might be cheaper. Hmm. And in fact, it's not much of either of those. It is a little bit faster and it is a little bit cheaper. So you think, well, why oh. would you bother doing it? Yeah. The thing about it is that it's much better on people in terms of the number of people required. So the first thought is, oh no, all this technology, it's doing people out of jobs. Mm. And that's a valid fear to have. But in this scenario, there's a huge labour shortage in the US. So they just can't physically get enough people to build houses. So yeah, they come right. along with a 3D printer. They need dramatically fewer people to get the house up to the stage where you then need to fit it out. And the estimation from some organisations in the US is that there's about a 3.8 million unit shortage in the US. So 3.8 million homes are required urgently in the US, which they just can't build because of a lack of labour. If you start building homes like this, communities like this, then it will get cheaper as the technology progresses. It will get faster as the technology progresses. But at the moment, not much of either of those, but at least they can do it. At least they can build them because yeah. they don't need lots of people hanging around to do it. The particular mo model of construction is one that we have talked about before. It is a bit like toothpaste that comes out of the 3D printer. It's concrete, <laughs> yeah. but it does it in layers. And I describe it as a Fred Flintstone house. It looks a bit rounded on the corners. It kind of shapes up and there's little layers. So it's not smooth on the outside. It's got little ripple effects down the outside and on the inside. Now people can choose to leave that look on the inside or just put something like gyprock or plasterboard on the inside and make it look like a normal house on the inside. But it is a different type of construction. But I would imagine very solid in its construction because it's a classic brick home that's actually holding all that weight up. It's not a brick veneer home that's relying yeah. on timber inside. Yeah, right. It's a brick home that's holding everything up like the roof and the internal structure of all of that is built around this concrete. Uh, it's pretty exciting and, and this is happening right now. It's not something that they're dreaming of. They're going to start doing it at some point in the future. They're doing it right now. As we speak, there's a concrete printer over there working 24 hours a day, no doubt, wow. pumping concrete out a little spout and making these houses. That's Pretty amazing yeah. and uh, and revolutionary for the for the world of uh, construction.
The world has changed dramatically over the last 18 months and the new normal will involve a hybrid workforce with video conferencing a part of that mix. You need your staff to focus on what really matters, the meeting, not the technology. Crestron can help your Teams or Zoom or WebEx meeting rooms work first time, every time, because Crestron is all about you. It is simple to deploy, simple to manage and a joy to use. To use video conferencing that adapts to the way you want to work, visit meetwithcrestron.com forward slash tech talk. Something a little bit revolutionary here. Uh, three dimensions. Yeah, pretty people are pretty um, used to, to what a three dimensional object is. You, you kind of work that out. What the difference is between two dimensions and three dimensions um, by about early primary school, I would say. Like, yeah, well, physicists they like to refer to the fourth dimension as being time. Now that stems from relativity and space-time fabric that holds the universe together. We'll talk about that more another time as well. <laughs> well, as any serial hoarder will attest, and I'm getting to the point here. Another dimension would be a fantastic space to stash your stuff and remove the clutter. I'm picturing opening my roller door to my garage door. And I've hit this fifth dimension. Well, as data files get bigger and bigger and we get more and more of them and uh, on our devices, creating a fifth dimension specifically for storage, Matt, might be a really neat solution. I want to tell you a secret here, James. Marketers sometimes get a bit carried away with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me the fifth dimension is just a name? It sounds really good, and I kind of think of the TARDIS being infinite on the inside and yeah. kind of being three-dimensional on the outside. I really like the idea of rolling up my, my, my roller door and just having this... And there's this light coming at me, and you just put the stuff in there and it disappears. That's right. And you've got forever storage. It sounds good. All those makers of storage facilities out there are cringing now going, no, don't do that to us. How can we ever sell our storage facilities? But the fifth dimension they're talking about here is, again, a bit of a marketing term. It's all about storing lots of data. And we're talking about digital data here, not your golf clubs and your tennis rackets and your balls that you uh, put in the garage that get used once a year maybe so i'm sorry about that one what they're doing here is they're taking the same sort of technology that we've seen in cds which then progressed to dvds because cds were fantastic and they used to burn little pits yeah. yeah burn little pits so you get your ones and zeros with the the burnt with a laser or, shining up into that pit, yep. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Or the, the raised bit that wasn't burnt out so that you got those. And then they came up with DVD where they said, well, we can make the pits smaller. So mm. we can store more data on a device that's effectively the same size. So this is now going the next level. You can hold 5D storage, hold about 10,000 times more data than a Blu-ray disc, for example. So this is going next level. Now, there are a few minor problems with it. Because you're burning such small amounts in there, the storage is actually really slow. So it's not something you'd use just to maybe burn some videos that we are talking about before, archiving and burn some videos onto a disc. It's something that we're talking about serious archiving. So when you've mm. got a, a whole library or a whole thousands of hours of videos, cat videos, for example, that you need to store <laughs> somewhere for the future mankind to to show well, what we're going to need to know that cats could play the piano. That's exactly right. All the wonderful things. How will people ever get a handle on our society now if they don't look back at the cat videos? They only write the data at about 225 kilobytes per second, which is mm. pretty slow. Mm. So, for example, they used a one inch square of glass and it hold six gigabytes which is pretty impressive but it took six hours to burn six gigabytes on there now one of the ways they do that is by a laser that puts out pulses 
every femtosecond. Now, femto, I'm not that familiar with femto, yeah, but 10 on. to the minus so, 15, I think. Yeah, femto right. Is. So, so a, a millionth is a micro. Yep. Uh, a billionth is a nano. Nano. Uh, yeah. a, a trillionth is a pico. pico yep. So, a femto is the next level. So, it's 10 to the 15. 10 Negative to the minus 15, 15 yeah, yeah. yeah. So, essentially, very quick. So, you've got these pulses coming out every femtosecond, and they're what is etching holes into this glass, but again, very small holes yeah. as it moves across the glass or the glass might move in, in some facility there. So pretty incredible in terms of storage. Again, used for this long storage when they're putting away things that will be looked at in thousands of years' time maybe. And by doing it on glass, very stable. Obviously, if you put something onto a magnetic media or even a memory disk, it can be subject to all sorts of things that will destroy that data. Storing it on glass, as long as you can find that reader a couple of thousand years' time, they go, there's something on this, but where's that reader gone? Why didn't we keep one of those readers available? Uh, no more hardware required. <laughs> no, I, I don't see this being in commercial use that we're going to have some device at home that's going to do that. But go back one level, sure, going from what's on a Blu-ray or a DVD to 10,000 times more is a big jump. But using the same sort of technology, i.e. going to smaller pits, going to faster burns, we'll probably see some sort of use of this technology in maybe something that stores 100 times more or 50 times more than what's available now. So there will be something that will come out that will be the next level that we'll use in our computers at home. But at the moment, this is quite incredible for that long-term archiving. Beats the hell out of the old floppy disk as well. <laughs> you better go through and explain that to some of our listeners yeah, too. Another time. That's another time, folks. On the back of the recent Glasgow Climate Summit, the general word is that we're at the point where any further delay will place us at the point of no return. The Australian government's lack of commitment is alarming, but the promising thing that they had to offer was uh, a loose promise to invest in technology. We've been tearing CO2 from deep into the ground and throwing it up in the air for about, um, sorry, up in the air for about 180 years. Matt, uh, do we now have some tech that can reverse that in a significant way, tearing it out of the air and shoving it back into the ground in some sort of solid form? Well, significant is the crucial word here. We'll get yeah, to that, whether significant. it's significant or not. But there is a device that started operation last month in Iceland, which is doing exactly that. They call it Orca is the name of the device, which kind of seems appropriate. It's big. Mm -hmm. And basically, it's a direct air capture device, a DAC is what they call them. And it does. It pulls carbon dioxide out of the air. Now, there's a few devices around the world. This is the biggest. But there's a few devices around the world that do pull CO2 out of the air. And sometimes they'll use it for different things. So, for example... Soft drink manufacturers say yeah. rather than make our own CO2, we'll pull it out of the air, put it in soft drinks. But obviously, that's only short-term storage because then we drink it and we burp yeah. <laughs> and the CO2 comes and back I up. I think what we're actually doing is we're stashing the carbon dioxide when we make ethanol for other drinks. Yeah. Uh, and so we're, rather than sending it into the air or rather than pulling it out of the air, sorry, we're just trapping it before it gets to the air. Yeah, that's right. So they seem like short-term. And even when we're capturing carbon, for example, in trees, we grow lots of trees as a carbon offset. But trees might grow for 50 years, 100 years, and then they die, and then they break down, and the trees carbon's Trees grow released. a lot of space as well. Yeah, that's right. You've got to find somewhere to do it. So this particular device pulls CO2 out of the air and then chemically bonds it with devices or substances that effectively form a rock. And then they bury those rocks deep down in the ground. But once it's combined with that rock, they don't think it'll come out ever. Now, ever's a long time, but certainly thousands mm. of years that is actually stored for. So you start pulling it out, putting in a rock, burying it. You go, oh, great. We've solved climate change, James. That's it. We just keep going, burning coal. Everything's okay. But at the moment, we're getting about 
4,000 tonnes a year that we can pull out of the air with this one device. But at the moment, we probably Still need... small potatoes, isn't it? It is. We need 5 billion tonnes a year pulled yeah. out of the air to make some significant change. So this is not going to make a significant change by itself. But just go back a little way. It was only way back in 1980, so only 41 years ago, that the first commercial wind farm was built in Crotchard Mountain in New Hampshire. And so people looked at that and went, what a joke, 20 wind turbines, 600,000 watts. Well, that's (laughs) never going to solve any problems. We're going to have to keep burning coal or nuclear energy or whatever else. So stop wasting your time. Jump forward 41 years and we're now producing 1.23 million times more power from renewable wind turbines or renewable power from wind turbines 740 gigawatts. So in only 41 years, 600,000 watts has gone to 740 gigawatts. Yeah, it just requires a little bit of, um, well, positive thinking and some, well, positive capital as well. You've got to throw some money into it. Yeah. Um, but but a bit of vision. Uh, 40 years down the track, things can grow. And um, I'm sure people that built that first commercial wind farm were laughed at. Oh, how silly is that? That'll never make any difference in the world. Some countries now, we've talked about this on previous episodes, they might be producing 15, 20, 30% of all the power they use in their country from wind turbines. Mm. And 41 years ago, they didn't exist or didn't exist in a commercial nature. So the 4,000 tonnes a year, not much compared to the 5 billion tonnes that we need to pull out of the climate or out of the air. But that's a start. Mm. There's no reason you couldn't build more of these. And it just comes down to, as you say, money. The real difference, I think, here is that building wind farms to produce electricity meant that you could sell the electricity. So there was a commercial impetus to do that and you Mm. could produce electricity cheaper than burning coal. Maybe not in the early days, but obviously now we can do that cheaper. What's the financial incentive to start pulling CO2 out of the air? Forget about destroying the planet. That's not really a financial incentive. But getting to that point where it's cheaper and getting someone to pay for it, at the moment you're paying anywhere from $600 to $800 a tonne to pull that out of the air. Uh, there's a belief that you'll probably get to two or $300 a tonne by, say, the year 2030 and maybe start to get up around 2035 as this really starts to ramp up, maybe $100 a tonne. Mm. It's still a cost, though. Someone's going to have mm. to pay for that. And that's, I don't know where that answer but, is but going But perhaps, you know, with the right heads thinking about it, perhaps yeah, the mineral that they're creating from this carbon dioxide and whatever um, crystal min- mineral has been created there, perhaps it has a useful purpose. Perhaps it can go into infrastructure. Perhaps it goes into roads. Perhaps it goes into buildings. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a good point. An insulator, perhaps, you know, it just requires the right material scientist to come up with um, a use and all of a sudden you've got this very lucrative uh, yeah, yeah, financial... Yeah, point. And this is what happens as we talk about all the time. Someone comes up with an idea, they run with that idea. Someone says, let's add to that. Someone else comes up with another idea. What about if we change that? Mm. Next thing you know, you've got penicillin. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, that's how it works, folks. Yeah, and we've seen it happen so many times in science uh, before now, and technology, I should say. Now, when a po- product becomes so popular that a significant proportion of the planet want in, then it makes sense that it's only a matter of time that the bad guys are going to exploit the popularity and use it to scam people in a weak moment. Am I right, Matt? What's got the followers of Squid Game on the defensive now? I'm devastated by this. I want this to be true, James. <laughs> As I've said before, I'm not that big a fan of Squid Game. I found it vaguely interesting, a bit too violent for my liking. But look, there was some interest there and look, my family liked it. But there's some emails doing the rounds at the moment saying, get access to the new season of Squid Game. You can be one of the 
early no. viewers of the new season. Why do they pick see on it me? before everyone else. That's yeah. right. I'm not sure why I'm so special, but I am pretty special, so I should be <laughs> able to see that new season of Squid Game. So click on here, but then it goes a step further, and this is one that will get me excited, James. You can be one of the background talents, maybe a crowd shot, for example, in Squid Game. Imagine oh, saying to your mates, hey, see that little dot over there in the corner? That's me. <laughs> that's that's me. me there. So that's pretty cool. All you've got to do, James, is you get this email it opens up an Excel spreadsheet. You fill in your details and send that off. And you just have to wait for the call to come before you'll get your casting call to be on Squid Game. Meanwhile, or alternatively, wait for your identity to be stolen. That's right. Meanwhile, you seem to have some funny things on your computer and your bank account seems to be being drained and all sorts of strange things happen because when you open that Excel spreadsheet, it had a Trojan in it, a Trojan virus, uh. and that infected your computer. And next thing you know, you're sending all your information off to a scammer, and there's no casting call. That's what gets me. Where's my casting call? So much disappointment. Ah, oh, it is. And this is the thing. The psychology of some of these scammers is brilliant. Mm. Pick on something that's incredibly popular. How can we associate a scam with that really popular thing? Oh, people want to be in the background of Squid Game. Will it? Offer them that. It's so inventive to oh. come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So oh, I actually am convinced some of these scammers have got some really high paid psychologists there who yeah. are doing some social engineering to work out why people are going to be attracted to it. And this is another example of that. But oh, I don't know how many times we say it. Just be skeptical, be aware, mm. be alert because the world needs more alerts. It just <laughs> seems to be one of those things that it's too good to be true. It is. <laughs> and if you're a bad guy, just ease up, will you? <laughs> Give us a Give break. Give us a break. <laughs> now, a little while ago, we lamented that the, um, the age of the QR code might be coming to an end, but not so in the wool industry. They've taken to this tech with, as a revolution to shape the way the industry runs. Matt, what is it about the humble QR code that's going to shake up the wool industry? It is good to see people understand what a QR code is now, which, mm. and they're not scared of it anymore. They realise yeah. it's just a barcode on steroids, so that's fine. And the wool industry, tracking... The wool bales, the whole supply chain through there is something that's been talked about for some time. Cattle have got their tracking of individual cows. You can actually track paddock to plate. You can have a steak on your plate and you know everywhere that it's been, including the farm that it came from. They haven't done that with sheep because it's a bit expensive to do it per sheep. Mm. But they've started doing it now with wool bales. And when I say started, it's a trial at the moment they're running. And they're relying on QR codes. Now, QR codes were first invented for the car industry to track all those different parts that go into a car because a barcode just didn't have enough ability to store data or not so much store data, but enough variety in the number of barcodes that are available. So QR codes are the same. When you start to think about all the wool bales that are created around the world and where all those go in the supply chain of that, having a QR code at each step of the way, mm. there would just be too much data there for there to be unique numbers with barcodes. So this has actually started now. There's a farm in the Riverina that's actually started this process. You essentially have a wool bale and a QR code on it, and you scan that with a program. Every step of the way where that wool bale goes, that's scanned. So you get to a beautiful shop in Paris. You have a jumper sitting on a shelf, and it's got a QR code on it. You scan that QR code. It will tell you every step it's been along the way, including the actual farm it came from. Now, again, it's a trial. Only one farm's doing this at the moment, so it's not going to be in widespread use. If it works, though, it will be. So anyone that wants to participate in this program, you essentially put QR codes on, you scan with a particular program, and then that can be tracked through the whole process. And I think people would find this 
absolutely fascinating to know more about where that wool came from. Well, and there's a lot of pride in the Australian primary industries, um, regardless of what you're growing. But there's something about wool. Um, the wool industry have, have had this next level of pride um, that if you've got Australia, something that's made of Australian wool, it's top quality wool. Yeah. And this is a very historical thing. There's a, there's a lot to be proud about there. Um, and so to have that tracked all the way to... Um, to the, the shop front in Paris or Milan or wherever, um, then, then that's something to, to really hang your hat on. And I think the other thing is that it actually would help with the counterfeit or not help the counterfeit industry, mm. help reduce the counterfeit industry. Sure, I'm, I'm certain someone could create some sort of fake process where you scan a QR code on a counterfeit and it looked like it was real. Yeah, that's right. But surely there's going to be some process in place to make it a bit more legitimate. So when you see that beautiful jumper that's got a brand name that you recognise, being sold by a guy on the street corner, scan the QR code and you can see that, in fact, the wool isn't wool, it's actually nylon that's made to look like wool mm. or maybe there's no QR code on it so it's got no legitimacy and maybe that will start to apply to other things as well. You see a handbag that's got crocodile leather in it and you can scan that maybe and this, I'm, I'm dreaming here now, but you might <laughs> yeah, scan yeah. that and find here, yeah. which crocodile farm that was, that crocodile was growing on or where that crocodile came from, uh, leather with, cows, all the rest of it. I, I can't see any reason why if this doesn't, or if this works, why it couldn't be applied to other devices, other manufacturing to really track that process all the way. Mm, super interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's see how that goes. Sick of Zoom meeting folks? Um, the, has FaceTime lost its appeal? Well, perhaps it's time to shake things up with a holographic chat, people. Matt, I can see a thousand people of all shapes and sizes, all dressed as Princess Leah here. They're sending messages, <laughs> annoying messages to their friends, saying, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Is this something I can look forward to in 2022? Absolutely. Holographic messaging. <laughs> you could, and I thought exactly the same thing. I thought R2-D2 with Princess Leia. Yes. Again, things that happen in the movies, eventually yeah, people go, someone well, gets the idea, idea and go, hey, that looks like something we could do. Yeah. Now, this is real at the moment. Cisco is already demonstrating this, and there are Cisco rooms, meeting rooms in the US right now that are actually using this holographic technology. Now, you've got to put on a headset, so it's not... The most. Oh, so we're not quite at that stage where we no. can all sit around the lounge room staring at Princess Leia. Or well, we can if we some put headsets on. Big bald fat guy uh, <laughs> dressed <laughs> as Princess Leia. Yeah, you can do it with a headset and you put the headset on and you can then look at a hologram that comes through. And you might think, well, that makes uh, Zoom any more interesting. We can see the person in 3D. We can move around to the sides and actually have a look at them if you want to look at them in, in a 3D image. But where they're really using it at this stage is training, especially with some sort of technical training. You might have, for example, someone repairing a video recorder, showing those little gears where they go, uh -huh, yeah. and you can actually pick up that video recorder and move it around in a 3D rotation so that you're not just looking at a 2D version of it, and with your goggles on, you're seeing the depth of those components as well. Well, I've heard of surgeons using a table, a tabletop where they can rotate a body or a torso right. and, 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 and identify this, but this is leaping out of the table. This so. is leaping out of the table, so you're actually seeing it in mid-air so that you actually see that full 3D holographic image. One company that's been using it is McLaren Formula One team. They're sponsored by Cisco, and they've got technicians back in a factory somewhere doing lots of high-level technical work, and you've got the technicians out there in the field at the racetrack. In the old days, they just put them on a plane and fly them to the racetrack, and mm. money was no expense. With COVID-19, they've got to keep within their bubbles. So McLaren have been using this for the technicians in the factory, the technicians on the racetrack, to show each other parts, to show each other what might be happening, to show where components might need to go in to actually 
do the things they might do if they were there in the real world, but doing it via a link with that holographic exercise. This is starting to sound like Tony Stark. Excuse <laughs> me while I jump from Star Wars to the Marvel Universe. But yeah, um, yeah Tony Stark stuff, yeah? You're absolutely right. Very I think, cool. I think it is. And this is first iteration. We'll see more and more development here because we've had the 2D images for a long time. We've seen... TV and mm. movies and things on 2D, and it's never quite as good as 3D. And then, of course, we tried 3D movies and 3D TVs, and that was a bit of a flop, maybe because the glasses didn't look that attractive. Mm. But the whole idea here is by putting on that headset and getting that full surround image, I think this is going to go a lot further. Yeah, very, very cool. And it should make family chats a little bit more interesting too. <laughs> That's right. When it's adopted. The UK is not famous for its hot, sunny days. We all know that. But it's all about to plug into genuine desert sunshine. Does that sound dubious to you? Matt, how is this going to work out? Uh, it sounds like it's just another story that someone's made up, but this is real. Undersea or subsea power cables are getting better all the time. We've talked about the fact that they're DC. We all learned something mm. about them being DC rather than AC. The longest subsea cable in the world is now working, joining Norway across to the UK. That's over 700 kilometres. But now we're talking about a new cable, 3,800 kilometres. Forget wow. that miserable yeah, little 700 yeah. kilometre wow. cable. And this is the thing that we'll see more and more of as people are trying to get away from burning fuels, whether it might be gas or coal or whatever it might be, to get some renewable power. But you need the renewable power. Where's it going to come from? Well, in England, as you say, there's not a lot of sunshine, so solar power is not a great thing. Sure, they've got some coastline there, they've got some wind power being generated, but why not go over to, say... Morocco, Portugal, Spain, they've got a bit of sun over in those areas and just get the power across to England. That and sounds like the English, doesn't it? We don't don't have the space here, it's too cold, everything. Let's just go and invade somewhere else and <laughs> grab their resources and bring it back. But at least sunshine's a bit free. Well, it is a bit free. And hopefully they're not invading too many of these countries. Hopefully they're paying for the power <laughs> they might be getting from this. But this particular cable that already is in planning, not under construction yet, but as I said, 3,800 kilometres, 3.6 gigawatts of electricity will be coming down this line. That'll power about 7 million homes in the UK. Wow. So we're talking about some huge numbers here. And of course, the first thing you think of is, well, that's just crazy. If you're getting power from that far away, you're going to lose too much of that during transmission. Again, as we know, go very high voltage, you reduce your current significantly. Yeah. And obviously they're very large cables, so low resistance cables as well. But going to DC for all of that, the total sum of all of that, 3,800 kilometres, 13%. That's all you're going to lose in transmission, wow. which seems incredible yeah. for something that long from that far away. But it does seem crazy. You're sitting there in the UK, you flick on the light switch, and you're getting power from somewhere, like Spain or Morocco. Near the equator. Oh, just seems incredible, doesn't it? <laughs> but we're going to see more and more of this. One of the things that they're talking about having to plan for all of these things that are going to happen is making sure they've got good maps of where all these cables are on the seabed to make sure you don't get snags between them or oh, get some yeah. interference between them. With DC, you shouldn't get that. With AC, you might get some interference. With DC, you shouldn't. So this is actually the planning for all of this to get all these cables on the bottom of the ocean and make yeah, sure people wow. know where they are. You drop an anchor somewhere. Don't drop, and <laughs> drag an anchor over the <laughs> top right. of them. Uh, yeah. And most of them, like, these Everyone's cables are, are about 700 metres deep, so I don't need too many anchors that drop down 700 metres. But mm. effectively, you're going to have some places where they're a bit closer to the surface of the ocean. It's just, it's a modern world we're living in, and this interconnectedness, we think it's incredible when we might join grids between two states in Australia. Mm. This is going a whole other level, and we have talked about it before as well. That just opens up opportunities, in my mind, to connect 
PNGs and Indonesians and Chinas maybe to Australia because we have got lots of space, we've got lots of sun, why not sell it to some of these other countries rather than keep digging up coal and selling that? Yeah, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. Uh, let's hope that a visionary um, with the wherewithal uh, can lead us into a future where we can do that. Mm. Mm. And there you have it, folks. Another absolutely smashing episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dixon. Nice work yet again, Matt. Send it long out of the ballpark once again today. Yeah, thank you. And don't forget, smartest podcast category. We've got that coming up. It's only a few weeks away now. Yeah. We're a finalist in that. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. And we'll <laughs> let listeners know how we go. Hopefully we'll give them good news. And don't forget to reserve yourself one of those hover bikes too, folks. Um, getting quick for those. Uh, I've been your host, James Eddy. Don't forget to like and subscribe.